I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli. I write for the New York Times and the New Yorker. I'm Terry Teachout, drama critic of the Wall Street Journal. And I'm Peter Marks, theater critic of the Washington Post. Welcome in bienvenue. Welcome. <laughs> no. Oh my God. To the thirtieth episode of Three on the Isle, a podcast from New York about theater in America. The big three O. <laughs> listeners, we're, he's actually dressed as DMC. He's in a cheese train. I'm doing an Alan Cumming today. Sorry, you can't see it. He's wearing pasties on. Oh, yes. no, anyway. oh yeah, exactly. No. You You'll guys be able to see it, but we'll get back You'll, to that you later. You all know me so well. We're hosted by American Theater Magazine, a publication of the theater. Communications Group, and this episode is brought to you by Charcoal Blue. Today, we're going to talk about two new musicals that just opened on Broadway, about which the three of us have some sharp disagreements. But before we do that, Kirby Pate, our producer, has some very special news for you. Uh, yes, it's we're 30 episodes in, and we're launching now our Patreon page so that you can support us doing what we love. Uh, if you go to patreon.com slash the number three, the letter O-T-A, that's patreon.com slash 3-O-T-A, uh, you look at some of our reward tiers. It includes everything from pa- uh, access to patron-only shows. That's Q&As, that may be blooper reels, that may be an extra round table. Uh, you could also get invitations to patron-only meetups. Uh, you could get you know maybe a little piece of merchandise, a tote bag, a mug, etc. And that, those are all on the website. Uh, we really thank you at this community that we've built. It is amazing, and we want to keep doing this for a lot longer. Great. Thank you, Kirby. That is exciting news. Yes. Now, back to Three on the Isle, where we're going to be focusing, as I said, on two musicals that have just opened on Broadway. One is a revival of Rodgers and Hammerstein's Oklahoma. The other is the Broadway premiere of Aeneas Mitchell's Town which first opened at New York Theatre Workshop three years ago. We're not going to just talk about these shows. We're going to talk about how we talk about shows. Mm. And in our second segment, we're (laughs) in our second segment, uh, we will look at casting. Uh, A few weeks ago on Twitter, somebody asked a question that went viral, and it was a really fun question. What's the most perfectly cast role you've ever seen in a stage production? So what makes uh, the question so interesting is that it's not just about the performance, but it's about casting a specific person in a specific role. Like, how does that happen? When does it work? But before we do, let's go back to Oklahoma and Hadestown. Both of those shows have received overall good reviews. But with both of them, it turns out that I'm up against the two of you. (laughs) Although in, in surprisingly different ways. In the case of Oklahoma, I am also bucking the general critical consensus. Whereas with Town, I'm part of the crowd, and you two are going against the tide. So as we talk about this, we also want to tackle an issue that all critics get asked ceaselessly. Did you see the same show I did? And, and of course, we didn't. That's the answer. <laughs> yeah. That's the big answer. But um, also, we want to talk about the idea of what happens when disagreements occur. And even though social media sort of tries to gin up feuds and anger and and vitriol uh, i think we don't talk enough about the true value of disagreeing and how disputes and dialogues among people who don't necessarily agree can be civilized not always divisive or intended to make another person feel bad which seems to be more and more the case 
uh, on Twitter especially. And I would hazard to say that one of the reasons we, we on Three on the Aisle can have disagreements because people often ask, say that one of the things they enjoy about the show is that we don't always agree and that we seem to be able to get along anyway, is that I don't think we tend to make these disputes personal. Right. And a little later on, we'll engage with another question, which is, what does it feel like to be alone on the aisle, to be mm. the critic who, in my case, didn't like uh, Oklahoma? <laughs> uh, we'll talk about that. But right. first, let's engage with the shows themselves. Let's start with Oklahoma. Elizabeth, I know you have I, very strong positive feelings about I, it. Let her rip. I, I'm gonna, it's very simple. I love this production. So little background. For those who haven't seen it, uh, it originated, I think, at Bard College. Right, Bard uh, Summerscape. Upstate, up, upstate New Three York. Three years ago, I think. Dur something like that. This show has been uh, aging for quite a while. Yeah. yeah. Uh, directed by uh, a man named Daniel Fish, who's usually known for very avant-garde productions in very tiny spaces in Bushwick or wherever, you know. The kind, I mean, well, first of all, though, so one surprise is why he would choose to do Oklahoma, mm -hmm. of all shows. Right. And to what he did to it, um, and some people say he completely he stripped it to its essence. Which there's part of that. It's a small cast. It's a new arrangements for like a band of seven, mostly acoustic arrangements. Uh, the band is on stage. Uh, it's staged in the round. Um, they're all in you know I would say period appropriate-ish outfits. It's not modernized or anything, and they follow the script. I think the the biggest change is at the very end. Mm -hmm. uh, but otherwise, it really follows... Which, which we must be careful not to be too specific about. Right. No, I'm not going to get into that. But like, I would say that's the biggest tweak that they've made. Is well, the also ending. you have to describe, I mean, I think also right. uh, the, the, the mise-en-scene, I mean, how right. they it's, stage this is yeah. quite the, extraordinarily different. In the, terms the house of lights the are mostly on. It's very, very spare. Uh, but there are times when it's pitch black, where they turn off all the lights. There's some restraint used of video. Uh, and I feel that the performances in that particular context are absolutely fantastic. And I liked Oklahoma before, but I love it now. Hmm. I, couldn't, I cried. The first time I saw it, I cried from beginning to end. I was a mess at the hmm. end. I mean, it was just... And some of it is because the songs, to me, f sound... So amazing! It was just the beauty of the. Uh, it is so exquisitely sung. I absolutely. I, I really have zero problem with this production. That happens so rarely. Well, you know, I, I grew up with Oklahoma as you know, in, in as a piece of corny theater. Right. Oklahoma, was, the oh, monument. Oh, right. exactly. And it was always you know in the context of a movie that sort of had sort of uh, uh, become the trademark for the show and the old movie version that was emphasized sort of the, the American values of the show it felt very much quintessentially Americana and what really you discover in this version which has been emerging in revivals of Oklahoma mm. over time yeah. is the what you would call the darkness of the story it, there are parts of the story that are not that don't really necessarily suggest that all is well on the American prairie. And that is taken to an extreme in this version, particularly through the characterization of Judd, who is the foil, the villain of the piece, so to speak, who is the intruder in the relationship between Curly and Laurie. The other. The other. Mm -hmm. And here becomes kind of a menace 
but at the same time, you feel unfairly treated mm -hmm. by a Curly who is now perceived as the white guy mm -hmm. who's, and yet Dredd is also white in this production, but yet is sort of the establishment, is the, is the, is the voice of, uh, of, of privilege in the story, in a sense. And I liked the screwing around with it. I loved the fact that we that he shook it up and 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 rolled the dice in a wholly different way. I didn't love all the performances. I oh, thought really? some Wait. of the singing was not the beautiful treatments, maybe by design, but yet that part of Rodgers and Hammerstein oh, I thought okay. needed wait, to be honored. Wait, wait, which ones did you think were I a little I, not I, as? I, you know, I, if I have to go on the record, I didn't. I didn't find Laurie the night I saw her. Rebecca Nomi Jones uh, particularly good. I didn't like uh, Damon Duan. What's his name? Oh, Dono. Yeah. I didn't find their voices particularly. Oh, I thought he's enjoyable. His voice is just. Oh my God, so swoony. Um, so I was, I'm sort of halfway between. I, but I, I did love the, the, the grabbing hold of this and throwing in audiences' faces in a new way. I loved that. I loved the gun racks along the walls of the theater. Yeah, that should be described specifically. Every right. wall of the theater is covered with rifles on racks. Yes. And Terry, and uh, but Terry, you had a completely uh, opposite reaction. Mm. Almost completely. Let me start by saying what I liked. I loved the band. It is a country western swing band, mm -hmm. seven pieces, uh, on stage in a lowered pit, and it's hot. Mm -hmm. And you're surprised because, of course, the original orchestrations of Oklahoma, the Robert Russell Bennett orchestrations, are very much a part of our sense of what the show is like. And it's quite startling to hear the show played in this way. But the band is so fine and the arrangements are so fine that I was on board very quickly. As for the member of the cast whom I didn't just like but loved, Ado Annie. Oh, I agree. Who is played by right. Allie Stroker, uh, mm -hmm. who uh, uses a wheelchair. And... I agree. On mm -hmm. no level is that an issue, although the, the wheelchair choreography is fabulous. Mm -hmm. But the main mm -hmm. thing about her performance, other than the fact that she's one of the best musical comedy singers I've ever heard, oh, she's... is that, not to put too fine a point on it, she is hot. Mm -hmm. She is the hottest, sexiest Edo Annie I have ever seen in my life. Mm. And that's what that role is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. uh, she lights the show up for me. And I would almost go and see it to see her again but not, i can't not, say no is a yeah. is a marvelous oh, it's, moment it's really terrific but not quite because i have real problems not with the idea of changing oklahoma not with the idea of giving it a conceptual overlay but with the way that it is actually done in this production to me it's predictable every aspect of the show that is familiar is inverted the men become these gauche, stupid fools. I think uh, uh, Laurie, Laurie mm -hmm. and, and Curly do not have any sexual chemistry. Uh, the Agnes DeMille choreography has been scrapped and replaced by a solo by a modern dancer. Yeah, that I didn't go the for. Whole, the whole premise of the show is to turn Oklahoma upside down. Uh, some of you may know or may not know the critics don't usually write their own headlines, but I wrote the headline for the review of, of Oklahoma that I wrote for the Wall Street Journal, which is Woke-Lahoma. Mm. And yeah. that's what this well, is. This isn't Oh, wow. I yeah. This is an attempt to do Oklahoma in a way that is among other things perfectly targeted to people 
who either don't like the show at all or who do like it but I think feel guilty about it. They feel that it's problematic because of the portrayals of sex roles. I mean, however, whatever their problem is with it. This is an Oklahoma that you can see if you're uncomfortable with Oklahoma. And I just don't think that that serves well a show whose expressive content is extremely specific, clearly defined by Oscar Hammerstein. It is a show about American optimism, and the score of this musical is connected to what it means. This is an Oklahoma, we'll say this much, it's an Oklahoma with an unhappy ending, an ironic ending. We won't tell you how it gets mm -hmm. there, but it's got one. And that is simply not what the show is like. I also had problems with many aspects of the staging and design, especially in the first act. Uh, Circle in the Square, the theater where this Oklahoma is, has transferred to on Broadway, is the toughest house on Broadway. It's a very odd space. It can be arranged in all sorts of different ways. The way it's arranged for this production is as an extremely long three-quarter round setup where action is taking place at the extreme ends of the theater where people are talking to each other from a distance that runs about a mile. And in the first act, um, that space is full of benches, it's full of chairs, it's full of tables. Everybody is present on stage for most of it, and it feels static to me. The staging feels almost like a concert staging for the first hour of I the show. I think that's true. And I see that as a problem. Uh, I also had the same reservations that you did, Peter, about some of the singing. Uh, but I, I'm, as I say, Oklahoma is a show that contains a great deal of darkness in it, but it's already there. It doesn't have to be put there. When I saw the show last summer or year before last, I can't remember what season it was, at uh, Goodspeed Musicals in Connecticut, Jen Thompson directed it. And she was working with a basically conventional-looking Oklahoma, but one in which Judd's darkness is amped up quite considerably without making him the sympathetic figure of the, of the show. He's not, he's not sympathetic in this one. I think, he's meant to be, I think he is meant to be perceived as the only man with whose values the audience can identify. Let's can we broaden out the, the question a little bit? Because I do think that this is a seminal moment, that for the, 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 the presentation of this show on Broadway in this style. And the question becomes, if we as critics do not support this next generation of directors take dismantling in some way the, the great war horses and looking at them in a way that the next generation feels they want to see it. If we don't support that, if we tamp, if we just beat it down so that those experiments don't happen again on Broadway, especially when it's a piece this iconic, uh, are, are we not serving? Are we are we failing to serve the bitter the bigger artistic community and what they should? What how we want them to be tackling these That's old? That's a good question. I I think there's space for Bartler, Bartlett share revivals the revivals that Lincoln Center Theater does, they're absolutely conventional. I, I love them. I absolutely enjoy them. There is a space for to, for, to have both. I, I want to track back a bit because I don't understand where, why you're calling this Oklahoma woke. It is, has not, it is, it feels a little reductive to me because I don't know what's woke about it. And why are you saying that it's also putting in a dark, extracting dark, creating darkness? Of course it's already there. It's it's just making it a little bit more obvious. And I don't think it's, um, it's not putting, as you said, it's not 
putting on stage anything that is not already in the show. It's just teasing, for instance, the character of Will, who's the, the kind of goofball Who's suitor. in love with that or any. Right. So if you read the, the character on the page, he's, 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 he's kind of pushy and dumb, and, and he's the kind of guy that you may want to shake because he's a little too persistent. But the way he's played, actually, I thought, like, on the page, I would find him completely annoying and, and kind of borderline repellent. Is uh, the guy who's just going to come after the woman like all the time? It, it's just like as mm -hmm. a woman, I would find him really just like just get away from me. Um, but the way he's portrayed, and that's where it's really smart, is actually a very sunny and enjoyable ca character. So it's not like the show is always finding the dark side of everything. And I do think that the character of Judd, I do not find him sympathetic. I think as every other woman, they're not going to find that guy sympathetic. This guy, this guy is the incel who's like collect, now he will be the incel collecting like, you know, insane photos on his laptop. Uh, well, and no, like I, in the smokehouse, he would have like his pelts. I don't think he is sympathetic, but I think the, uh, the objective in presenting the show this way is to make him the man in the cast with whom one sympathizes because of his dilemma, whereas we reject the other men in the cast for being big, loud, vulgar. Uh, but wait, uh, who's, do we, who's doing the rejecting? I, 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 I'm not rejecting any of the. I'm not rejecting Curly or, or Will, or or the peddler. Well, that's the difference between how you're responding to the show and how what I think that the purpose so of the production Interestingly is. Interestingly weird. <laughs> Weirdly interesting. Well, I, I do think that uh, my concern is a little different, and it's it's the question of whether we as gatekeepers are, are going to think of this as something that we want audiences to experience rightly or wrong, depending, even with the choices mm. that some of us don't agree with, right. whether we're going to be open to the idea that these shows like Oklahoma are uh, are malleable enough, are are uh, relevant enough to directors and audiences younger than us, and hey. therefore we have to sort of take that into account when we write about it. I I had this in mind when I was seeing it. I went with someone who hated it, <laughs> hated it, and I was trying to resist the ener the negative energy oh, yeah. that was you coming can, my you, way. You can feel it. And you can feel it, of course. And I could feel you know, around me a variety of reactions, mm -hmm. people curious, weirded out, some en entranced. And I just thought, you know, this is one where uh, the, the boldness of bringing this to, to, the, to the premier platform uh, in the theater. Some people don't like to think of it as that, but it really is. It's the largest uh, common space that we have to, to talk about theater and, 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 and witness theater. That, that this piece merited, with, even with its flaws, it merited that kind of uh, a hearing and, and, and viewing by an audience. And well, I, I think even I, having it, uh, maybe even having a negative review would actually invite people in to see this. Well, it shows well, that you can have this heated debate about a Rogers right. and Hammerstein show. I, right, I, right. It just proves how much of a masterpiece it is. Well, what does a critic do in a case like this? It, it has always seemed to me that, especially with a production like this, the most powerful thing that we can do is describe it clearly right. and accurately. Right. That's actually more important than whatever conclusions we come to about it, is to write a review that allows the reader to read the review and say, 
okay, I've got an idea of what this looks like. Right. I've got an idea of how this works. And it, my review, although very strongly negative, is also mostly descriptive because you really have to do that when the when the production goes so far against the grain of a familiar show. The, the biggest service that you can provide for the reader is to tell them what they're going to get right. if they spend 200 bucks to but, see But the even show. then, it's tricky because, for instance, do you think your description, would you qualify your description of Judd as being a locus of empathy? You may think that's an objective description. I don't think it is. Well, other people have agreed with me about that. It's not a totally unique, including yeah. the, including the woman that I saw the show with. I mean, it's not it's not an, an entirely idiosyncratic way of interpreting what's happening in the show. But I'm I'm talking more generally about letting people know that this Oklahoma is not like any Oklahoma mm. they've ever seen, and here are the ways in which it's not right. like it. Yeah. And if that sounds bad to you, uh, stay away. And if right. it sounds good to you, go for it. That's true. That's true. I mean, that's a baseline there that, yeah, if you're not going to, if you don't want to hear those orchestration played by a seven-piece band instead of a 25-piece orchestra. But Go home and listen to the original cast album. Don't, yeah. don't, don't watch the movie. Right. I, <laughs> it's interesting that the meeting point for uh, the three of us on this show is the most conventionally rendered performance in an unconventional sense, in the sense that she's in a wheelchair. That's the only unconventional sense. This Aduani is the most mm -hmm. Rodgers and Hammerstein-y character yeah, that's on that stage. That's so true. Uh, that's which so is true. interesting that we and we all found that resonant. Yeah, and well, so do audiences. I mean, I, now what does that really get excited yeah. when she's moving around on that I stage? Mean, uh -huh. This yeah. probably goes to an issue that we're going to talk about later, which is casting, uh, and the and the and the tremendous value that has. But yeah. it still goes to something intrinsic in this show. There is something eternal about that mm -hmm. character that you really have to uh, uh, relate to in a different way, maybe, than Curly and Laurie, who are a little I, bit more mysterious. I, I would have loved to see that Oregon Shakespeare Festival production from like last summer when one. they had two women as the leads. Mm -hmm. like, right, I mean, right, I, right. this sounds very intriguing. Yeah. I mean, that to me, that is just a testament to this show's power. Right. You can, and also, you know, hats off to the Rogers and Haberstein estate that okayed this. Production. I saw an Oklahoma in Washington at Arena Stage several years ago, in which it was uh, very uh, diverse. The uh, the uh, the peddler was played by an Indian American or a Pakistani American actor. Uh, the the, the Lori was black. The uh, uh, you know similarly, um, but so was Aunt Eller. Mm. And but the whole it was the whole uh, was it was all reversed in terms of the attitude. It was all uplift mm. it was interesting how it was about the multicultural sort of amazing mosaic of america essentially and that's and how it played did, did that work for you yes it was very moving yeah it was very moving it was the first time i'd seen it done particularly in that way and i thought i thought at the time it was kind of revolutionary the people from rnh the people who rogers and Hammerstein organization came down to see it and were thinking about bringing it to New York, so there was always this impetus. This one is even more radical. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a much more radical interpretation. But I wonder, you know, what other works? You know, we're going to be seeing a West Side Story coming I can, in. I can't. I don't know. You know. Oh my God, that, what, 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 ter Terry! When you see the uh, Evo Van Hover West Side Story, you're gonna you're gonna think back yeah, only right. to this, gonna, this like, Oklahoma. 
nostalgia. Was like, those were the good, the, the good days of Daniel right. Fish. Right, right, exactly. Well, for those of you who saw the three of us going back and forth about Oklahoma on Twitter and were egging <laughs> us on, I hate to tell you that nobody's grabbing anybody by the collar in here right now. No, it's, no yelling no. is taking place. No faces are written. No, we're going to sing Kumbaya after right. this segment. So let's, right. let's move to a show where my disagreement reverses right. the, the paradigm, so to speak. It's Hades Town. Uh, essentially a new musical. I mean, it's had several iterations before reaching Broadway. But it is, in essence, a new show that has come to Broadway, and it is new in all sorts of ways. And since I liked it, I'll do the description and then let you guys go after it. Um, it is uh, an Americana... Uh, you, not all of you may know that term out listeners, but that's a radio format term for a certain kind of um, uh, music that blends different kinds of American styles. It's an Americana scored uh, version of a concept album which tells the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, bringing it forward to depression era and using New Orleans as the hellmouth. Um, the score is again backed by a seven piece band which is on stage. Uh, uh, an, Again, an unusually good band and, an un and a very individual one. The, the linchpin instruments are a fiddle and a tailgate trombone. Um, Ava Noble Zeta is Eurydice. Uh, we remember her from Miss Saigon. Uh, Patrick Page, is, uh, who has the lowest, most gorgeous voice possibly in all of American theater, is Hades, the devil. Um, and I, like most of the critics who have written about this show, was thrilled by it. I wasn't completely satisfied with it. Uh, the The origins of the show as a concept album are too clear. Uh, the songs are not strongly dramatic. I don't think there's a single fast song in the whole show. And as a result, there's there's something of a tendency for it to sag a bit in the middle. But the score is... And the beginning and the end. Yeah. Well, but the, 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 the score is so individual, so vivid, so stylistically rich. I described it as a gumbo of the different styles. Uh, I was completely That's like a gumbo from Popeye's, man. That's like the Lemma's gumbo, most industrial. Do you, think, like, do you, do you think it was a, a musicological uh, pleasure you took in this piece? Well, well I wondered about that. I, I have thought that right now one of the biggest problems with the American musical is that really only two kinds of scores are getting to Broadway, Disney pop and mm -hmm. synthetic pop. Mm -hmm. And whenever I hear a show like this that is musically rich, musically individual, I'm inclined to gravitate towards right. it. But so, I mean, because my own background and emphasis is very strongly musical, I might have been biased that way. On the other hand, remember, mine is the consensus opinion from which you guys are differing. Most of the critics have really liked the show. Having said that, go for it. Oh, where to begin? Well, I... <laughs> Please. You know, I, I, for me... Uh, I've read some of the reviews, and I, you know, some of them, Terry. I don't know that the reviews were quite as, uh, you know, as as robustly supportive as you're indicating. I've read several mixed reviews, along with uh, several praiseworthy reviews. I think there is something. I don't know. That it feels like there's something really wrong with the musical theater. That this is what is being um, sort of trumpeted as 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 
fair for a, a large audience. I okay, think it's a very why. peculiar piece of theater. What doesn't work for I thought you? dramaturgically it had no story that I could absolutely engage with. I didn't care about a single human being on that stage. Maybe Amber Gray's Persephone. I mean, they mix in the story of Persephone and Hades with Orpheus and Eurydice. I thought that Reeve Carney and Eva Noblezada were really... Um, milk bland, toasty so and I you know I to sit there for two and it felt endless it was a two and a half hours of of story packed into an hour of interesting material <laughs> you know what I mean it was like it just felt like the opposite of 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 in of engaging and I felt also I think Rachel Chavkin who also did Natasha Pierre in the great comet of 1812 who's a great visual stylist. I think she's got a great eye. And I thought, once again, this had been uh, pumped up for Broadway, apparently, from its off-Broadway roots. It was very eye-filling at times. It had a nice look to it, especially in that scene where they started, with the lights came down and they swung oh, the lights. And, yeah, I mean, it was, you know. But I felt all style to me. It felt like all just, it felt like, you know, variations on a music video that I was watching for two and a half hours. Yeah, I, f I felt like I was watching a Depeche Mode video when those like hunky guys from Hades were on stage. Like I could not... And that choreography with the, I don't know, like the pulling the chains and the... You know, it was like sort of... Tote that barge, lift that bale. Yes, exactly. Um, so it just... I, it, it made me very worried about the musical, actually, when I saw that, because I thought, you know, I don't know what this... And my, many of the critics, as you say, did like it. So I, you know, I'm not... I'm, I'm a little mystified by the reception. Well, did you see the same show that I did? Exactly. It's rare that I have such a reaction to this show, but I hate absolutely everything about this show. I cannot stand it. I started a New York Theater workshop three years ago, very different staging. That's actually the most interesting part about it for me mm. is like how the problem solving of moving it from New York Theater workshop where it was done in the round, in a kind of immersive uh, situation, very spare setting, to this kind of supersized mega McDonald meal that we're getting now where it's been restaged and completely rethought, well, stylistically, on the, from a scenic design uh, point of view, to fit a traditional uh, Broadway theater. Uh, it has lost, <laughs> I really didn't like it three years ago, but now I really loathe it. Um, it is so empty and so vacant. So three years ago, there was a pretense of a bit of a political subtext, which I think we need to talk about because people are kind of like harping on. There's a song about a wall, right. which has Why been we there. Build the wall. It's coincidence. Right. It has right. been there right. for, for a long time. I saw that since the very beginning. Written yeah, yeah. six years before Trump. Right, right. Like right. But right. you know what? Pink Floyd also wrote an entire album about a wall, and That's nobody's true. like, give me a break. I mean, people write songs about walls. That Which just happens. Which is why I didn't mention it in my review. But uh, I did, oh because God. it was but, so detached from everything else in the musical. It made no sense but, to me. But anyway, so three years ago, they, they, they were making more of a point that the underworld is this kind of dystopian industrial revolution hellscape where the workers are ostracized by Hades, who's at that point some kind of you know, like a uh, rubber baron of the underworld. Now, this thing, to me, has been completely sucked out of the Broadway version, which is now pretty much apolitical because it's about these two completely dull, pretty faces doing, I don't know what. She's hungry for something. He's some kind of poetic barista writing a song that is never over, uh, that it never finishes, I mean. And then at the end, they're back together. Like, there's no tragedy. Like, he, 
In he's the going beginning, to there hell was the story. Where is the story? He's going yeah. to hell together. You're meant to understand that there's something really big at stake, and it never happens. And also, what is Hades doing? Why is he such a bad guy? I'm like, take me with you, Hades. Like, you're the cool guy here. Can I Patrick ask Page. Can oh, I ask, my God. Can I ask you both a question? <laughs> Are you surprised on the day that the review, when you start yes. to read from people <laughs> that you like and and think of as smart people, Yes. Uh, and you see that they're... Their reviews are completely the opposite of how you felt, or at least very majorly opposite of I, the way you felt. Do you find you see yourself? Is it me, or is it them, or do you just no, sort of accept them. the idea? That, <laughs> do you just accept that the <laughs> idea that we're just you know we're not built the same? It never I, bothers me to be the only person who likes or dislikes the show. I'm trying to remember the first time that it happened to me. It may have been the Book of Mormon, which I really detested. Right. <laughs> and uh, so I read all the reviews and, you know, everybody else thinks, thinks it's the second coming of Christ. And uh, I, I'm not phased. You mean the Angel Moroni. Right. I'm, I'm not phased by that right. at all. I mean, sometimes in certain very particular circumstances, I will ask myself, was I having a bad day? Was I not receptive? I mean, if I have some reason to wonder about my receptivity, I'll be thinking about that. But usually, you know, I'm fine with, with being yeah. alone on the aisle. And it doesn't surprise me to get up the next day and, and find that everybody disagrees with me. It interests me. Yeah, I, I like it too. It's it's interesting. I mean, I mean, you don't want to be a contrarian just to be a for right. just to no, be a that's, contrarian. That's, that's a, terrible. That, that's annoying. Yeah. But there are mornings though when you wake up and you see what's going on, and you and you see that you're out there alone, especially if you know I do it out of town sometimes, and and things come into town, mm. and that you really feel like you know you're whatever you've endorsed or not endorsed is being sort of it's up on the you're on the rack with it, but. There are moments, I have to say, when I read the reviews, and if it's something I have been extreme either way about, and if the tide is the other way, you do feel a little like you didn't dress correctly today, or that you're you're underdressed, or somehow uh, you feel a little more exposed. I, I've got to say, but when I hear people raving about the score of Hadestown, I'm just like, Dr. John is rolling in his grave right now. You're praising this completely rhythmless, funkless, soulless, washed out Vermont coffee shop version <laughs> of New Orleans. Have you listened to any music in the past 60 years? It well, sounds to lyrics, me like St. James Infirmary. The, the lyrics, is good, the lyrics are so bad. It's no. embarrassing. Orpheus, <laughs> I drink to us. Oh my God. I Elizabeth just these does are, not feel these things. These are strong no. feelings. But yeah. let me offer a quote. I think I may have used it on this show before. <laughs> it's something that was said by Hans Keller, the great German uh, critic and musicologist, who said, when I hate something, I ask myself why I like it. And I've always thought that that was one of the most fascinating and rich paradoxes in, in criticism that I know. When we have strong feelings about something, that's a giveaway, and it may be a giveaway that something is happening below the surface. And I always ask myself that question. Well, if nothing I, is happening below the surface in that show. I mean, well, no, but I mean, <laughs> come on now. If, if, if you intensely dislike something, it's not mediocre. It has rung a, a negative bell with you. And it has been my experience in a fairly long life that I have hated things that I realized at a later point that I really liked. It, no, I, I think this actually, you, this one is aggressively happened? mediocre. Well, but I'm not, not talking about this one now. I'm talking oh, about general. the general principle. Uh, because, again, I mean, we've all been alone on the aisle. We're not phased by it. And in the same way that, that we don't get bent out of shape with each other, 
It doesn't bother us to be alone. And I, I offer this for your consideration. None of us is particularly young, and I have a feeling that once you've been doing this for a while, you are less phased by disagreement. Mm -hmm. It seems less personal. I think when you're a very young person, right. That's true, you're, you're first getting well, into the game of criticism, and you're, you're passionate, you're excited, and if people disagree with you, well, the hell with them. Well, and it's also the case that I think if you're younger, you tend to link your identity to your taste. Oh, that's really good. So if you someone attacks, attacks something you like, it is very personal. It's like you're attacking me. Honestly, I mean, my identity is not linked to whether I like Oklahoma. I mean, I'm fine either way. Go at it. I, you know, it's, it is what it is, but I don't feel it personal. I don't take it personally if someone thinks my opinion of Hadistan is insane. Right. Which, you know, we right. all know who we are. We've been around the track enough times that I, so often on Twitter, uh, you were talking earlier, Peter, about the social media and how it, it amps up these discussions. And I often get the feeling that there are people out there who are threatened by disagreement. Mm -hmm. And Elizabeth, I think you put your finger on it right there, that, that di disagreement cuts to the sense of identity. And maybe mm -hmm. that's especially true for younger people. I don't know. Yeah. So the uh, the trio of crones here is going to move on. The three oldsters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Three, uh, so there is something so, you liked about Hades Town. Yes, I did. I I did. I did. Right. I I am a big fan of Patrick Page. Oh. You know. Oh, yeah. by the way, it was kind of funny to see him reunited with Reeves Carling. Yeah. Reeves Carling. The they Green were Goblin. both. They were both in Spider Man: right. Turn right, of the right, Dark. Right. Talk about. Yeah. <laughs> Surviving oh, wow. a disaster. Yeah, exactly. Surviving a show I often think about. So did Katrina Lank also, you know, one of our three and the half favorites. She she played a she was in a she was she, she was, was in that yeah she was what's her name the big head spider she the, was yeah. I don't even remember that was she that. the one that was floating back okay and, oh my I can't God. remember like the name of that character now but uh, oh my yeah she God. was in that show not oh. the I don't think she was in the original cast yeah she was Arachne she was Arachne yeah she was oh, a right, Arachne don't tell me this she was. <laughs> I'm a blocking this out. I, la, I don't la, think la, she was la, the opening night. listening to you. I feel the <laughs> lobes of my brain are separating. Yes. And apparently she was great. I of course I, she was. I can't even discuss this. Anyway, this is, so Patrick yeah. Page. All right, Patrick Page yeah. is great uh -huh. as Hades. I wish the show would have just been not Hades Town, but Hades. Get rid of everything else. Just build a show on this guy. Just like Give I, him a I, backstory. I think that Angels, like Angels of America should be Cone. Remember Caiaphas and Jesus Christ Superstar? That would have been a better, you know, that really deep voice too. But anyway, I miss, so I, anyway. I think that's a case of someone who's ideally cast in this. Uh, and that brings right. us to our second segment. Okay. This is the segment that is not forced at Thank all. Thank God. Um, but before we get to that, uh, a word from our sponsor. What makes the perfect performance venue? Comfortable seats, great views of the stage, a line for the toilet that doesn't take you out to the sidewalk? In truth, every venue is unique, from a college studio space to a Broadway house, from a presentation space to an arena. Undertaking their design or renovation can be a challenge, but at Charcoal Blue, that's all they do. Charcoal Blue are the leading theater, acoustic, and digital design consultancy that have designed, renovated, tweaked, and polished more than 200 performance and presentation spaces, both here and abroad over the past 15 years. From a six-person mobile podcasting studio to the new Performing Arts Center at the World Trade Center, their team of experienced musical and theater professionals innovate at any scale and any budget. With studios in New York, Chicago, the UK, and Australia, speak to them today about how they can help you realize your ambitions for your space. Visit them at charcoalblue.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at charcoalblue. 
Welcome back to Three on the Isle. We're talking now about the issue that pretty much transfixes us every time we write a review, and that is the issue of casting. You know, it's a theatrical axiom and a good one that two-thirds of directing is casting. And interestingly, I just came back from Stanton, Virginia, where I saw a series of plays that had no director that were completely actor-directed. Uh, but that's another issue. Yeah, I've heard a lot about those shows, Very and interesting. I really want to go one of these days. So so, so the, the question I guess we're considering here is, you know, is in what we, is in what we see, what, what are the kind of the great casting uh, coups mm. in our experience? You know, uh, there are people who come to mind as, you know, like a Rex Harrison in My Fair Lady, a Robert Morris in How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. But um, I'm wondering, you know, how much we can attribute or how much we do or do not attribute uh, the success of a show to just that casting question. Um, you I mentioned Paige in Town. It wasn't enough for you to like Town to have that one performance be so, right. so good. But, but I just came from Hillary and Clinton in which I found Metcalf and John Lithgow playing the leads to be so, so good. I would agree with that, even though I didn't like the play itself. Um, but yes, the casting is... In this case, the casting elevates material that is, to my mind, just so-so. But the heart of the matter is that the performances didn't just emerge from nowhere. Somebody somewhere in the process said, who's going to right. play mm. these roles? Right. Who should we hire? Right. Who can we get? Yes. And I've, I've actually learned a lot about that at first hand. I've been involved with the casting of two of my own plays, and I have now seen half a dozen people uh, play Louis Armstrong in, in my first place, Ashman of the Waldorf, and I chose or was part of the choice of two or three of them. And I've really become very conscious of the fact that, that casting is the lens through which we see the show. Mm -hmm. And that leads me to ask, of all the shows that, that you guys have ever actually seen in the theater, what would you say was the most perfect match of actor and role? Elizabeth, why don't you start us off? Well, um, there's a few. I think I, I want to also differentiate. Like, I think there's something different when you see someone in a role that you know, someone playing a classic role that you may have seen several times, and then there's something different when you see someone in a in a new play. Or it just puts you in a different. Uh, so I've seen a lot of streetcar named desire. Like a lot of. I think right. it's one of the most produced plays. Like th yeah, that in Glass right. Menagerie and Lear we were talking about on the last podcast. And my favorite one is one that may seem a little kind of intuitive uh, as Blanche Dubois and that's Elizabeth Marvel mm. in the Evil Van Hover version that was from like 20 years ago or something Theater like that. Is that the one in the bathtub? Yeah, that was the one in the bathtub. Boy, uh, did that and just sum up Evil Van Hover in a single yeah. sentence. <laughs> and, the one in the bathtub. And that's I, for me, it was, was just it? like, it was a revelation. And every Blanche Dubois ever since. Has Why been do you think? Why? What was it about Marvel that just so. There was something so completely fearless and just uh, absolutely. I, I, I feel sometimes, especially with Blanche, there can be a lot of ego coming into that. Uh, a sense that the, the actress is acting mm. Blanche, because Blanche is acting. Mm -hmm. So you're having someone who's doubling down in a way. Right. Right. The word performative, which has become right. cant in recent years, but here mm -hmm. it's entirely relevant. Right. Exactly. So that's often an issue I have with whoever is playing that part. 
and mm. I've seen some very good ones. Uh, right. But that one, for some reason, felt so close to the bone uh, while retaining that performative aspect. It's, it was insane. And then I would say another one that really marked me was uh, another... I think I'm using the word fearless a lot for this, but I mean fearless in the sense that there's really no capital A acting and it seems to be no... The, the, the person is subsumed into the role. I right. would think of Fiona Shaw in mm. Medea uh, and yeah. Maureen Ireland in Blasted the Sarah Kane uh, uh, play. Mm-hmm. But then what I also love if, is when... Is, Typecasting. Yeah. Right. I love typecasting. I love when Nathan Lane does Nathan Lane. And I love when Andrea Martin is doing Andrea Martin. And that's why sure. I love... Sure, well, they are, they are they really are. good at being themselves. Right. It's like a flavor They're, that you love. Right. And I love the idea of the vehicle. No, but I, I like the star yeah, turn. I get I, it. I, why is you Brooks Ashmenskas so good in the prom? Because he's doing what, he's always what he always does. best. And he does it in a manner that nobody else does he's mm. so uniquely himself in that and it's actually a really rare connection of him what he does being perfectly suited to what the role demands oh, right. no, it's I've, not always the case i would come at it from a slightly different direction i have knocked him many times in print because he over eggs the pudding and often is cast in roles where it's not working. But here, yes, he over eggs the pudding. I like wow, that. He's playing the Brooks Ashmanska's role. Mm-hmm. But it was quite clear to me that personal feeling was engaged in this role sorrow and melancholy and mm-hmm. regret. And suddenly, this actor that I have been pretty sharp about in the past is lighting up the stage and I'm thinking to myself and I think I said it in the paper this looks like a Tony performance to me and I never thought I'd say that about him Mm -hmm. I think that there's some other uh, level that certain performers uh, attain in certain roles that give you a sense of well-being that extends way beyond what you imagined was possible I will give you a few of mine that's so true Angela Lansbury as Mrs. Lovett in Sweeney Todd was beyond my ability to understand how a person could inhabit a part. First of all, she's such a sweet, seemingly sweet person playing this this monstrously sort of needy woman. Um, but it 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 ex- it extended to such a deep level for me of need and want and charisma, all those things that that was one of those performances that I will never forget. I would also put in that category Mark Rylance as Olivia in Twelfth mm. Night because it captured something so elementally enjoyable about playing Shakespeare and being someone on a stage who you didn't expect him to be and yet found things in it that were so much in his wheelhouse of... of Maybe you know manners. I mean, whatever those uh, that variety of tools in an actor's toolbox are: physical gesture, voice. It all sort of made sense to me on that level. And I would say that on the stage right now, when I saw Laura Benanti do My Fair Lady, I had that same sense of of ease, of feeling at peace with myself because she was showing me something of herself that worked so grandly for her. Is it like comfort? Sometimes I'll go to a show and I'll feel, okay, these guys know what they're doing. Right. And I'll mm. relax. Right. Because I'm, I'm not afraid that something's going to go wrong anymore. Yeah. 
Right. There's such a level of assurance. There's such a merger, an integration going on at such a pleasant level. It goes beyond the feeling of, you know, you see somebody working too hard I, in a show. Yeah, I, and that happens so often. It goes beyond that. It's There's some times that these connections are found. And, and as you were saying, Terry, you were sort of pointing to this idea that somebody else has to recognize that this is possible in that person. Yeah. It's almost a miracle, the times at which you... After you see them, even if you see other people do it, that connection that was made feels almost like kismet. Like, yeah. how did they find that right person for that right role? Because I, the effect is incandescent and time and, and, and for all time. And on that night, this is part of the beautiful the beauty of theater is that it is happening in the moment. Yeah, that's that's. But I've got to say, sometimes casting is not even. It's not even about the performance itself. Like I remember when, uh, the fr when I saw Bette Midler in Hello Dolly, I was so overwhelmed because again, it's it's so much of it is time and place. The right person right. at the right time in the right place, the right time of their career, the right role. It's so it could you know like five years earlier or five years later, it's not going to work. But at that moment, it is absolutely perfect. And now that you mentioned the right time of career, let me tell you about my my greatest piece of casting that I've ever seen. <laughs> you know, I, I travel a lot, and um, I know that there are actors out there in the regions that are as great as anybody we see in New York. There's a guy in Chicago, best known out there, named Mike Nussbaum. He's now in his 90s. Oh, Mike he's Nussbaum, in his, sure. He's in his 90s. He was in the original Broadway cast of uh, Glengarry Glenn Ross, right. I think. He is still acting. He is still hitting the ball out of the park. He is the dean of Chicago actors. I guess he's the dean of American actors by now. In 2012, I saw him in the Chicago remount of the off-Broadway production of Mark St. Germain's Freud's Last Session. He's playing Freud. Mm. He doesn't really look like Freud. He's got a beard, but he looks like Mike Nussbaum. But he stepped out, he opened his mouth, and the degree of identification with the character absolutely just put me on the floor with awe. And I thought, I will never forget this as long as I live. And I never have. Mm. Great story. Wow. All right. Okay. Well, actors, we can talk about that for hours. I know I could. I, and and a, yeah. I would love to talk to you guys at some point. Uh, when, down the line, we should do something about the issue of, you know, when is somebody giving a bad performance and when is it that they're miscast? Oh, I yes. really I think we should talk I about that. I yeah. don't think I'm always clear in my own head even about the question. And sometimes we use well, this term miscast. I think as, I'm going to I'm going to mention possibly one of those performances in my pick. OK, in go my ahead. Pick this week. So, um, yeah, because now we're going to talk about the, the shows that we've seen recently that we uh, cared for or did not care for. And uh, Terry, you want to get us started with that? All right. I, here's one that I liked about which feelings were mixed. And that was classic stage company's revival of Mark Blitzstein's uh, The Cradle Will Rock. Mm. It is a very tricky show because it has a very problematic book. And I don't mean problematic in the current sense. It's a Stalinist book, a communist book. It's, it, it is a, a, they call it a pro-union play. But in fact, uh, Blitzstein was the most red-hot Stalinist on Broadway in the late 30s. And it's like an editorial cartoon where the characters all have names like Mr. Mister and Larry Foreman. <laughs> but it has the most wonderful score. Uh, it was written mm. as, as a, an American counterpart of the Three Penny Opera. Blitzstein wrote uh, score, uh, book, the whole thing. 
And although this wasn't an attempt to reproduce the famous original uh, production that Orson Welles uh, threw together uh, spontaneously when the doors were locked, you've all seen the movie Cradle Will Rock, you know what happened. But it was done on that kind of scale, uh, just a piano with four of the members of the cast playing it, a largely bare stage. It's a, it's a John Doyle production, a quintessential John Doyle production. It's small, it's clear, it's legible, it's economical. Uh, the, the one flaw with it is it's also unamplified, and some of the people in the cast had trouble mm. being heard over the piano. Mm. But mm. nevertheless, here's a show about which I have all kinds of mixed feelings, uh, a, a show whose implicit politics I, I have great problems with, and yet I was completely involved, transported, uh, and I was delighted by mm. that. Uh, I, I love, there's nothing I love more sometimes, I think, than being in the theater and feeling that I'm liking something I didn't expect to like or that I expected mm. to have problems with right. that I'm not mm. having. Yeah. That's, that's a what great feeling. Yeah. It's what tells me that I'm present, that right. I'm paying right. attention. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. So, and Cradle, the Cradle Will Rock did that for me. Mm. Peter, you want to... Well, that's an interesting segue for me because I came into a production in Washington recently at Arena Stage that I, I had had reservations about in New York and I found it uh, a better play when I saw it the second time. And this was Ayad Akhtar's Junk, oh. which I had seen oh, at... and a play with which I have real problems. Tell us about this yeah. production. Well, you know, the, the first version, I thought, I, you know, in, in retrospect, and I think I was right, that the, the production was misdirected. I, it, it just was really badly staged in almost an assembly line fashion. If you'll remember, they would have groups of people come on the stage mm. from behind, and there was this like Hollywood Squares set of boxes, grid, that they would perform in. And then each set of people would come on the stage, do a scene, and then proceed, march down in front of us, and then walk downstage off the stage. And it had this kind of proceed, crime procedural, it's about the junk bomb king, Michael mm. Milken. And it had this kind of monotonous quality. Well, um, Jackie Maxwell, the former head of the Shaw Festival, directed it at an arena stage in the round, <clears throat> excuse me, with a cast of uh, both uh, Washington and some New York actors, wonderful actors like Ed Giro and Thomas Keegan. And it had much more flow. He, uh, uh, Ayad Akhtar uh, cut uh, some parts of it that felt a little superfluous. It still didn't have quite, I thought, the uh, the... The, the caustic quality that Disgraced had, his Pulitzer-winning play that worked better for me. But it was a much more resonant story for me about that time period and this kind of, uh, this, these reprobates, these people who just decided to run roughshod over American capitalism. And the, and the, and the piece had more heft. In the, in the hands of an actor, this clean-cut kid who played uh, the lead, the Michael Milken character, uh, it now was a looked like he belonged on an Ivy League crew team, and had this was in a sense you know this representative of all that's gone wrong with you know American business. Uh, and I thought that in general it was a much more uh, galvanizing evening. You have really put your finger on something that again maybe we ought to be talking about this at greater length at some other time. But one of the biggest challenges that we face as critics is when we see a new play. And we're trying to figure out, am I seeing the play or am I seeing the production? It's the ultimate problem. Yeah. I agree. And the answer is, we don't know. Right. And that's the, part of the great thing about my being able to review regional revivals is that I can see sooner than we usually do new productions of shows that I've seen in New York that are completely it's totally different. useful. Right. And, and also it goes to the other thing we talked about, which was casting. 
I think that the production I had seen in New York, filled with very capable actors, was was basically miscast. Mm. And this 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 cast showed me where those uh, the, where those flaws oh. were. So speaking of casting, Elizabeth. Well, yes, there's two. There's, I I recently caught. A, uh, caught up with the mother, which is a play by Flo- oh, yeah. Florian Zeller. Right. Uh, we had seen the father on Broadway. The yes. mother uh, stars uh, Isabelle Huppert uh, off Broadway. It is a kind of bonkers. Have you guys seen it? No. It's kind of a bonkers performance. Uh, I really had no idea what she would do next. Good bonkers or bad uh, bonkers? Or just bonkers, bonkers? Just bonkers, bonkers. Uh, but that's what she does. And I, I loved it. I loved it. I, I can't tell what the play is worth. I think I like the play. Actually, I read the play before, but the way they did it, it was not at all what I was expecting. So something was happening on stage that I was not expecting. Um, and it's the performance is both very, very opaque because you cannot tell. It is not an American-style psychologizing performance. Right. She doesn't bother looking for like the character's backstory. She really does not care. Got it. It's all she she has said. She's very clear. She plays what's on the page. Got it. She's it, not making up a backstory about the character. She plays what's on this. She's done movies where based on novels, and she did not read the novels. She doesn't like, care. Did you like it better than The Father, also by Florian It's Zeller? so d- different. The play itself, or yeah, the play itself. The play itself. I think they're comparable in quality but the production I enjoyed more because it is kind of bananas and she's so <laughs> charismatic um, Trip Coleman oh okay, so you make me and very then, curious and then I saw Burn This ah uh, yes <laughs> with Carrie Russell and Adam Driver Adam Driver an actor I do not like and looking at his credits I realized I've seen every single of his New York stage appearances <sighs> including wow. the very first one off of Broadway in a play called Slipping mm. Um, 10 years ago. Uh, I'm not a big fan, and in Burn This, I could not take my eyes off of him. I mean, it's kind of the point of the show, but um, again, a bonkers person. I had no idea what was going on. I, I don't know what he was trying to communicate. I don't know what he was trying to do. Mm-hmm. I don't know what he was doing about with the character. He was just there. But It was such a presence. I completely bought it. Huh. I bought it. Uh, but the problem was, and I wonder if maybe it was at don't know what the, I don't have any information on this, but the problem is that he's meant, the character is meant to have a very kind of animal connection, physical connection with the female character who's here played by Carrie Russell, and there's absolutely nothing happening on that stage between no, the two I've, of them. I felt the same way. They absolutely are it. not communicating, so. and uh, she is just not, she's very uh, mattered in the worst way, whereas I thought he was mattered in the best way. I saw Burn This with a friend of mine who saw the original production three times. Uh, John Malkovich mm-hmm. created that role. And, and Joan Allen was the... And Joan Allen. Yeah. And she it, it's one of her clearest theatrical memories. And she just could not disconnect from what she had seen 20 yeah. years ago or however long it was. Um, and I, it's, I don't know whether it's an advantage or a disadvantage. I mean, I, I didn't like the production and I didn't like the casting. Um, and I kept imagining what I thought Malkovich would be like. I went on YouTube, and I, there's no film of the production, but the commercial, the TV commercial for that production is up, and you get about six seconds of John Malkovich. Oh play, and in those six seconds, you do get a sense of what it must have been like. Very scary. Mm. Good scary. But you know what? The weird thing, also, Burn This is, is not a good play. No. It, there's a 
debate on Twitter going on right now about the merits of the play itself, I don't think it's a good play. It's a glorified rom-com. It's very basic in the new, yeah. <laughs> the old and new meaning of the the word, and uh, not a good play. It's a streetcar named Desire with a happy ending. Oh my God, it is. Uh, it is so shallow, it's, it's unbelievable. But I was never bored. I never looked at my watch. I was that's important. And that's important. Right. You know, and the friend I was with, we were right. both like, okay, we, this is not good, but right. it's kind of great. Right, <laughs> so, which right, is my right. new metric mm-hmm. for shows now. Yeah. It's not good, but it's kind of great. Yeah, when right. I hate something, I ask myself why I like it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I was not hating that. I was just completely like baffled by what I could not tell what they were trying to do. I mean, I could vaguely tell. And I was like, okay, like nobody is st- you know, stirring that ship. Fine, I'm going to look at Adam Driver just going like all method on us. And it was incredibly entertaining. Oh my, I, I must say this because I forgot to put it in my review. My <laughs> friend remembered and I checked it. Uh, the play has been censored. Pale carries a gun in the play. It's, a, it's not a plot point, but it's mentioned twice in the text. He doesn't have a gun in this revival. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Why, what do you think that is? To, to make him more th- sympathetic? No, I what? think it's because they're afraid to have a gun on stage in productions but, anymore. That's what I think. God, that's insane. Well, uh, I just hope with uh, episode 30 coming to a close that uh, our listeners will wa- not want to burn this. <laughs> oh, my God. He's a great audience. When Terry laughs in an audience, you Peter, know it. how dare you joke about this? My cathedral just burned. I'm so, oh, my God. <laughs> That's pulling. You're pulling the French card. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thank you very much. Until then, <laughs> the next time we do this, I'm Peter Marks. I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli. And I'm Terry Teachout. You've been listening to Three on the Isle, a podcast from New York about theater in America, hosted by American Theater Magazine. And this episode was brought to you by Charcoal Blue. Our producer is the super capable Kirby Pate. <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter at Three on the Isle. And write to us at 3 isle at gmail.com. Please spell it out. And please check in with questions and comments. We love to answer your letters on the air. And uh, make sure to leave us an absolutely excellent rating uh, and an even better review on iTunes or Google Play. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on The Isle.